Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Turn with me, if you will, please, to the Old Testament book of Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 5. Second Kings chapter 5. When you read through Scripture, and you read through Scripture with your mind engaged, you come away with an understanding that the Lord God is sovereign over all His creation. That means He's in total control. Now you may think that God is not in control because things are going haywire. Uh, the history of mankind is not a very, shall I say, pleasant history, appealing history. But we have to understand that in His sovereignty, God created man with a free will to make decisions, to make choices, and to act accordingly. And that free will was devastatingly affected by sin in Genesis chapter 3. And so man does not do God's desire because man is alienated from God by sin. The primary will of God, which is outlined in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, has been... Well, the primary will of God has not been altered. But God has a secondary will. And that is, He will allow for certain things to transpire. He allows the storms. He allows diseases. He allows violence. He does not orchestrate these things. He does not create these things are evil. And they come as a result of sin. And God allows them in order to accomplish His will and purpose, which is clearly stated in His primary will. And that is that all men would acknowledge Him as Sovereign Lord and would worship Him as Sovereign Lord. Now, from the Garden of Eden, we have been moving in that direction. We have been moving in the direction where the Lord God reclaims His creation, purges it from all sin, from all stain, and creates a people that will worship Him in the beauty and in the holiness of the Lord God. That day hasn't come yet, but that day is fast approaching. The sovereignty of God. It is unmistakable in the story of Naaman. If you look at the story of Naaman as simply being uh, a man who contracted leprosy and was healed by the prophet Elisha, then you've missed the whole point. The story of Naaman is not just about the healing of a man with leprosy. It is also about the sovereignty of God and how God orchestrates events and, and circumstances and situations that can bring a person to a saving relationship with Him. Now granted, in the Old Testament, there were very few people who had a personal relationship with El Elyon, the Most High God. Most of the individuals you have in the Old Testament, particularly God's chosen people, didn't necessarily have a personal relationship with Him, but they did worship Him through the mediation of the priests through the sacrificial system, through the ordinances and the ceremonies and the traditions that God had established in Mosaic law. But insofar as having a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship with the Lord God, very few people did. Noah did. 
Enoch did. Moses did. David did. But these are just a few of the millions of people that lived in the course of the Old Testament. I want you to look at the life of Naaman, particularly this part of Naaman's life, and I want you to see the sovereignty of God at work in a man who did not know God, who had never heard of Jehovah God, but was a man who lived in a nation that was the enemy of God's people. And he worshipped pagan gods. And yet, in the end, through this particular situation in his life, he came to an understanding and appreciation, and I believe, a personal relationship with Jehovah God. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The man was also a valiant warrior. We'll stop right there. Naaman, as is stated here, was the captain of the army of Aram, ancient Syria. In today's military, he would be the chief of staff of the army. He would be the highest ranking general of the army. Scripture says that he was a valiant warrior, and that means that he was brave and he was courageous as a soldier. He was not one who sat back in the tent and simply mapped out strategy for his uh, colonels and lieutenants and so on and so forth to carry on the work. No. He was a valiant soldier, a valiant warrior. He led his army into battle rather than sending them on ahead of him. He was a highly respected man. He had the honor of the king. He had the honor of all of his soldiers. He was highly respected by his nation. And I might add, even though it does not state here, he was a wealthy man by virtue of his successes as the nation's general. I want you to look in verse 18. <clears throat> in verse 18, 2 Kings 5, verse 18. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes to the house of Rimnon, Rimon to worship there. And he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. This means that Naaman was a close and trusted aide and confidant to the king. He was one who was in personal contact with the king at all times. And even when the king decided to go to worship, when it was time for him to go to the house of his pagan god to worship, it was Naaman who escorted him into that house of worship. He was so favored by his king that later on when he decided to go to Israel to see the prophet Elisha in verse 5, the king of Syria said, go and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed, that is Naaman departed, and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. So the king gave Naaman about five and a quarter million dollars worth of silver and gold and clothing to take with him as a gift to the king of Israel for the services that he was hoping he would receive in curing his leprosy. 
In verse 9, Naaman traveled with an entourage of servants and soldiers, and he rode from Syria to Israel in style on horses and in war chariots. So we can see that Naaman pretty well had it made in life. He was everything that a good soldier would be. Brave, courageous, successful on the battlefield. He had the confidence of the king. He had the admiration of his soldiers. He had the respect of his people. He was wealthy. He was popular. Scripture doesn't say, but he was probably handsome. Who knows? We don't know. But he had everything a man would want. Lesson number one. You can have everything you want and still lack what you need. You can have everything you want in life. You can have the fame and the fortune. You can have the glory. You can have the praise. You can have the money. You can have the admiration. You can have everything, the power, the influence. You can have everything that your heart desires and still lack what you need. Go back to verse 1. It doesn't come across this way in the English text, but in the Hebrew text, it is a very solemn word. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The man was also a valiant warrior, comma, a leper. A leper. Erica Slezak says, quote, Fame and fortune are nothing if you're not happy and healthy. Fame and fortune are nothing if you're not happy and healthy. End quote. Naaman had leprosy. It was a contagious, incurable disease, skin disease, that was one of the most dreaded and deadly diseases in the ancient world. And Naaman had it. It was for him, in all of his glory and power and majesty and influence, it was for him a death sentence. A death sentence. But, my friends, it was not an accident. It was not an accident. File that away. We'll come back to it here in a moment. Now again, let's understand. Naaman, over the course of his career, would have developed a great sense of personal pride. He would have developed a kind of arrogance about a good soldier, yes, a great friend to the king, yes, admired by the people, yes, but there was, I am sure, an arrogance about him, a pride about him that stood in the way of him receiving the help that he needed with regard to his leprosy. His status with the king, his notoriety in the nation, his prestige as a commander would have bolstered that pride in him. But now he faced a deadly disease, an enemy that was beyond his ability to defeat. Lesson two. Pride is always a roadblock 
to God's blessings. Pride is always a roadblock to God's blessings. Now the Bible speaks of three types of pride. There is the pride that we feel about a job well done. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 4. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. There is the pride that one has for a job well done. And there's nothing wrong with that pride. There is nothing wrong with feeling good about your accomplishments as long as it doesn't lead to arrogance. We ought to have a sense of pride about us, shouldn't we? Amen? Nod your head yes, because you should. We would all be lowlifes if we didn't have a sense of pride about ourselves. And the Apostle Paul says there is nothing wrong with having a sense of pride about your personal accomplishments. Then there's the pride that we express over the accomplishments of others, particularly loved ones. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul wrote, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Paul was saying to the church at Corinth, once they had gotten straightened out and they'd gotten the matters of sin squared away in the life of the church, Paul wrote back to them and he said, I am proud of you. I am proud that you have achieved what God desired in you as a church, that you acknowledge sin and that you deal with sin as God desires you to deal with sin. I am proud that you're back on track with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ministry of that gospel to your corrupt and sinful city. Paul was proud of the Corinthian church. And there's nothing wrong for us being proud of each other. There's nothing wrong with saying, at a boy, if you're a boy. There's nothing wrong with a pat on the back. There's nothing wrong with telling someone, thank you. I appreciate the work that you've done. I appreciate what you've said. We need not only to have a healthy pride about ourselves and our accomplishments, but we also need to foster a healthy pride in others for their accomplishments. But there is a third pride mentioned in Scripture. It is a pride that God hates. It is an arrogant pride. Pride. In Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13, Solomon writes, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Listen to the words of Solomon again. The fear of the Lord... And the word fear here means to respect and to honor. An individual who has respect for the Lord God, an individual who honors the Lord God, is to hate what God hates, to hate evil, to hate pride and arrogance, or an arrogant pride, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth. These are the things that God hates. And these are the things that God's people should also hate. This is a pride that God despises. This is a pride that God abhors. It is an arrogant pride. It's the kind of pride that stems from self-righteousness or conceit or comfortability, if you will, in one's sin. God hates it. Because it becomes a hindrance to those who seek him and to those who seek to serve him. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, 
Solomon writes, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And he lists those seven sins that God hates. And at the top of the list is an arrogant pride. It was the sin of Lucifer in heaven when he challenged the authority of God in heaven. It was that arrogant pride that moved upon him to try to dethrone the Lord God and he was punished by being exiled from heaven. You can have everything that you want and still lack what you need. Naaman had everything that a person could want. What he needed was a cure for leprosy in his mind. But what he truly needed was salvation. He needed a personal relationship with God, the only one who could cure him of his leprosy. But that way, that avenue to God was blocked by his pride. Go back to verse 1. And notice, I'm sure you did notice as we've read it through twice now, but I want you to notice it again. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him, what? By him, what? By him, who? The Lord had given him victory to Syria. God knew Naaman. Problem was, Naaman didn't know God. God had used Naaman and the army of Syria as an instrument of punishment upon the sins of Israel, as God often did, because of that cycle of sin that we've talked about for the last couple of Sundays. The cycle of sin that Israel was involved with God in punishing his people for their sin would often bring a foreign nation to the border as a reckoning tool to correct the sins of his people. God had used Naaman and the Syrian army to do that because Israel was again in that cycle of sin. Naaman wasn't aware of that. But God was certainly aware of Naaman. For God to bless Naaman with saving grace and with healing mercy, that pride, that arrogance in Naaman had to be dealt with. How does God do it? How did God do it in Naaman's life? Let me give you six steps that God took to deal with Naaman's arrogant pride and to bring him to the place where he realized that a cure for leprosy was incidental to the cure for his lost soul. And parenthetically, well, we'll get to that when we get to it. Number one, God permitted Naaman to be afflicted with leprosy. God permitted Naaman to be afflicted with leprosy. In my own mind, I, you know, when I read Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, I, I try in my own mind to go back to that time and to put myself in those sandals and to see what they saw, to feel what they felt, to hear what they heard, to experience what they experienced. And in my mind... I see Naaman, the great general of the Syrian army. Naaman, the great aide and confidant to the king. Naaman, whose name was on the lips of everyone in the nation, who spoke of him with admiration and with pride. 
Naaman, a success on the battlefield. Naaman, a success in every area of his life. Everything is going well with him. But that was not God's primary will for him. God allowed Naaman to be humbled. To break his pride. By giving him a situation and presenting him with an enemy that he could not fight. That he could not extinguish. He could not defeat leprosy. A dreaded and a deadly disease. And as a result of this, again, I can see in my own mind this great, this powerful, this mighty man reduced to a man who was worried, concerned, fearful, a man who, was, who had become weak, not only physically, but weak emotionally, mentally, certainly spiritually, because he was faced with a situation that he could not handle. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever faced something like that in your own life? Everything seems to be going great. You're aboard your yacht and everything is smooth sailing in life. And you're out there enjoying yourself, having a wonderful time. And then the storm clouds appear. And you realize you can't get back to harbor in time before the storm hits. I remember with the situation that I had in my health, and you're well aware of that. When it got to the point where it was beginning to affect me, even in the pulpit. And I had been to doctors for 40 years. Doctors always said the heart was fine, nothing wrong. Till I finally I got a hold of the right doctor and he said everything is wrong. And within the span of 24 hours after being diagnosed with four major blockages I was sent to the hospital and early on Saturday morning just a day or two after the diagnosis I had bypass surgery. I didn't have time to get afraid. I didn't have time to panic. I didn't have time to do this, that, or the other. It was, this is the diagnosis. We're shipping you from Turlock to Modesto. You're going to have bypass surgery. Boom. That was it. But Naaman had a long time to think about what was going to happen to him. Leprosy. That was the first step. The second step. In one of the raids that the Syrian army had conducted against Israel, a young Jewish girl was captured and she was taken to Naaman's home to serve as the servant of Naaman's wife. And upon hearing the news that her master's husband had contracted leprosy, she said, look at verse 3, she said to her mistress, Naaman's wife, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Coincidence? Coincidence that this great general had contracted leprosy and in his own home was a young Jewish girl who had been taken as a slave in his own household serving Naaman's wife that she should know of a prophet in Israel who could cure leprosy? I don't think so. She was a plant. 
God had planted her there. God had put her there for a reason. Why? Because he's a sovereign God and he can do those things. Why? Because God not only wanted Naaman healed of leprosy, he wanted Naaman saved. Why? Because he would become a great witness to the true and living God, to an idolatrous and a corrupt nation. And that's how God works. She was a plant. God arranged for this young Jewish girl to be in Naaman's household at the precise time when Naaman needed to hear a word of hope. And she gave that word of hope to him. That's the second step in God humbling this man. The third step The servant girl truly gave Naaman hope. I'm sure when she said this, her, his ears picked up, perked up. And he was beginning then to lay plans to go see this guy. But it also created a major problem. It was indeed a word of hope. But it was also a word that created problems. Why? Because number three... Israel was the sworn enemy of Syria. Israel was the sworn enemy of Syria. God was using Syria to punish Israel for their sin. Naaman's army was already conducting raids on Jewish towns. It would be a humbling thing, wouldn't it? It would be a humbling thing for this great general of the Syrian army to return to the land that he had been ransacking in order to find help. That would be a humbling thing. Swallow your pride and go back to the country that you have been raiding in order to find help from someone in that country? Four. Elisha the prophet treated Naaman inconsequentially. Look at verses 9 and 10. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Now get the picture here. You've got to understand what's going on here. Naaman travels with his entourage to the throne room of the king of Israel expecting to find this prophet who could heal him of leprosy. But the prophet wasn't even there. And the king didn't even summon the prophet Elijah to come to the throne room and to meet Naaman. He basically said, you've got to go down and see the prophet. The prophet will not come up to see you. If the president came to town and the president wanted to meet you for whatever reason, maybe you're a leading contributor, maybe you're the number one dog on the fan club, but if the president were to come to town and the president wanted to see you and he was going to be at such and such a place at such and such a time, don't you think, because you honor the president, even if you may or may not like him because you honor the president, you would go to meet him? Or would you sit at home and say, well, if he wants to meet me, he has to come to my house? Huh? You get the picture here? Naaman is no flunky. Naaman is a man of high regard. Naaman is a powerful man. Naaman has the ear of his king. And his king is conducting raids on Israel. And rather than Elisha coming to see him, he has to go down and see Elisha. 
Well, not only that. Naaman goes to Elisha's house. Elisha doesn't even come out and meet him face to face. Talk about insult. Elisha sends Gehazi, his servant, out. And he tells Naaman, go down to the Jordan River, take a bath. As a matter of fact, because you're a filthy Syrian, take seven baths <laughs> in the Jordan River. Number five. The Jordan River. The Jordan River wasn't the most sanitary river. Matter of fact, it's kind of like the muddy Mississippi. If you go by the Mississippi River, if any of you happen to be down that way, you'd look in certain places of the Mississippi, you'd say, I'm not a guy. No, I wouldn't swim in that water. Go down to the Mississippi River and bathe seven times. What an insult. What an insult. Lesson three. Naaman's pride was inflamed. He was incensed. But lesson three, God's plan doesn't always meet our expectations. God's plan does not always meet our expectations. Naaman was on a rampage. He was insulted. He was infuriated. He was offended because he expected the prophet to acknowledge his greatness with gracious words and maybe a couple of genuflections while you're at it. But the prophet wouldn't even come out and see him face to face. Naaman expected to be healed by some display of miraculous power. But the prophet didn't even rub salve on him or give him a potion to drink or chant some incantation over him. Furthermore, the rivers of Abana and Farpar were far more desirable for recreational swimming back in Syria than the muddy Jordan River. Naaman was humiliated by all of this. He was humiliated by the attitude as well as the words of Elisha. He'd rather go back to Syria and die from his leprosy than, su than to submit himself to this Jewish prophet's so-called cure. But what did Solomon say? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. There is a Hebrew word, kokmah. Kokmah. It's translated in your English Bible, wisdom. And the word literally means the enlarging of one's heart. The enlarging of one's heart. Not in a physical sense, that would be dangerous. But in the minds of the Hebrew people, the heart was the seat of understanding. And kokma, to enlarge one's heart, means the ability to take instruction and to apply it into life's situations. The ability to take in instruction and to apply it to life's situations. That's what wisdom is in the Hebrew Bible. All wisdom, listen, all wisdom comes from God. All wisdom comes from God. But He uses unexpected people to dispense His wisdom into our lives. We tend to think that those who are in the limelight, those who are high and mighty, the movers and the shakers 
of our culture and our world. These are the ones that have the corner on wisdom. Sometimes we're amazed at those whom God uses to dispense wisdom into our lives. The ones that we would least expect to have a worthy word to speak to us. And this is the sixth step in God's bringing Naaman to his spiritual senses. Look at verse 13. Then his servants, Naaman's in a rage. Naaman is packing up his marbles and going home. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, which is a title of respect. It's not that he was the father of these guys, but it was a title of endearment. It was a title of honor. It was a title of respect. My father... Had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Makes sense. They were appealing to his pride. You're a great man, you do great things. But they were being used by God to humble him. Yeah, you can do great things. So doing this little thing ought not to be a problem, right? Dear friends, we should always seek wise counsel from those who love us, who respect us, and who have our best interest At heart, these servants and these soldiers loved Naaman. They wanted him healed. And they appealed to his conscience and to his sense of pride to do something that was beneath him. To him, it was an insult. To them, it was wise counsel. Wisdom is wisdom, no matter where or whom, from whom it comes from. I was talking to a friend not long ago. Angry, frustrated, basically at his wit's end, very depressed. Life didn't turn out the way he thought it would. And he was basically confined at his house because he was taking care of his wife who had become invalid. And he told me, he said, I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, I walk around the house I can't go anywhere because I'm afraid she'll get out and so on and so forth. It sounded to me like she was either entering into dementia or Alzheimer's but had not been diagnosed. But could not go out, had to take care of her 24-7, so on and so forth. And he said, I walk around the house all the time and I'm talking to myself and I'm arguing to myself about this and about that, about this, so on and so forth. And he said, I'm so frustrated, I'm angry, I'm depressed, I don't know what to do. And I told him, I said, you need to be talking to somebody else. If all you're doing is walking around your house, arguing with yourself, talking to yourself, mulling over your situation, you're only getting one opinion. You're only getting one side of the argument. You're only getting what you already see, hear, and know. You need to be in fellowship with someone else. You need to be talking to some other people. You need to be getting some wise counsel from other folks. But that's how we are, aren't we? Whether it's pride or 
whatever it may be, you know, whether it's this, this American idea that we've got to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we've got to make it or break it, we've got to chart our own course, we've got to do this, do that, we can do it ourselves because we're Americans, we, we are in control. No, we're not. If we were in control, dear friends, we wouldn't be in this mess. Right? Right? Thank you. We need wise counsel from each other. We need to hear what God is saying through other people. And we need to be open to that. We need to be open to that. What was God's plan for healing Naaman? Was there something magical in the waters of the Jordan River? Shake your head no. No. Was there something mystical in the words of the prophet? No. Was there something miraculous in taking a bath seven times in the muddy Jordan River? No. No. Healing came to Naaman just like it comes to all who seek the Lord for help. Number one, it must be God's will. And I stress this. I stress this. It's not always God's will that a person be healed. It's not always God's will that a person be healed. I don't know the numbers of individuals that I have prayed that God would heal. We prayed for Loretta that she would be healed. We prayed for Vern Snow that he would be healed. We prayed for my mother that she would be healed. We prayed for Ethel Spratling that she would be healed. But dear friends, it's not always God's will that a person be healed physically. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, there was a leper who came to Jesus. And as he approached Jesus, he said, You can heal me if you're willing. And Jesus said, I am willing. And he healed him. We have to understand, dear friends, that if there is indeed something wrong and we're seeking God for healing, we need to first of all seek his will for that healing because it may very well be that God can use us in a greater way in our illness than he can use us in our full health. That may sound weird, it may sound strange, but dear friends, sometimes that's how God works. And we'll get to that in a minute. Number two, it must come from total surrender to God's will. It must come from total surrender to God's will. In the Sermon on the Mount, before Jesus begins to talk about the ethics of kingdom life, he talks about the spiritual nature of a person who's going to be exercising those ethics. And he begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he said, blessed are they who mourn. And then he said, blessed are the meek. These are the three attitudes that are necessary for a person to come into the kingdom of God and to live uh, ethically and morally in the kingdom of God. There must be a broken spirit. There must be uh, a conscious awareness and mourning over one's personal sin. There must be the one humbling himself under the authority of God. God does not heal just because we ask Him to heal. It has to be His will and it has to be from total surrender to His will. Thirdly, it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. Do we believe God can do this? Some people want it but they don't believe. They don't trust in God. Jesus, James, John, and Peter came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And as they came down from the Mount of 
transfiguration, there was a group of people, the other disciples were there, and a group of people, and they were gathered around this boy who was demon-possessed. And they couldn't cast this demon out of the boy. And so Jesus inquired, what's going on here? And they explained to him what was going on. And the boy's father was there. And he said to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us. And Jesus said, do anything? All things are possible with God to those who believe. And the father said, listen, the father said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. We don't always go the full ten yards with Jesus in matters of his will. Sometimes we like to be like the Samaritans with the Torah. We like to pick and choose what we like and discard what we don't like. I like this about God's will, but I don't like that about God's will. So I'll just focus on the part that I do like and I'll ignore the part that I don't like. No, you're either whole hog in or you're whole hog out. You either jump into the deep end of the pool or you don't go near the pool at all. You either believe in the Lord and the capabilities of the Lord and the power of the Lord and the sovereignty of the Lord or you don't believe it at all. Now with Naaman, he didn't know who God was. He had no understanding of Jehovah, of the Israelites. But he did believe the word of the prophet. And we know that the prophet was God's representative in Israel. He did believe the word of the prophet and he was encouraged by the, the words of his servants. And so what did he do? You know the story. He went down to the Jordan River and he took seven baths in the Jordan River. And I am sure the first time he dipped down under, he came up, leprosy was still there. The second time he dipped down, came up, the leprosy was still there. The third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time he dipped down and he came up and there was still no change, not even a gradual change in his condition. And I'm sure by the sixth time he is wondering, this ain't going to work. This is some half-cocked prophet who doesn't know what he's talking about. This is some individual who's just feeding me a line and I've come all of this way and brought all of this money and risked all of my time and effort to, to, to do something that is just ludicrous. Well, I'm already in the water. I've already dipped down six times. One more time ain't going to hurt. He dipped down and he came up and scripture says his skin was as cleansed and as whole as a baby's skin. Perfectly cured. God's plan for you in any given situation may not always meet your expe expectations, but it is God's plan for you. Understand that. If God indeed is sovereign, then his plan for you is perfect. It is what God desires for you to know and to experience. It may sound strange. It may sound odd. It was an odd plan that God gave to Joshua for taking Jericho. Wasn't it? Nod your head yes, because it was. But when Joshua did what God said, it worked. The walls came, follow, came tumbling down and they went in and they took Jericho without firing a shot. It was an odd plan that God gave Gideon for defeating the Midianites, wasn't it? I want you to go out and I want you to meet an army that has you outnumbered 10 to 1. And here's going to be your fighting weapons. You take a flashlight, you take a, a noise popper, and you take a bullhorn and you'll defeat the Midianites with your flashlight, with your noise popper, and with your bullhorn. Sounds like a stupid plan to me. But it worked. And 
Gideon and his men defeated the Midianites. It was an odd plan that God gave the prophet Elisha for recovering a lost axe head that fell into the river. But it worked. Grab a stick and put the stick on the water and the iron axe head will float up and you can retrieve the axe head. Are you kidding me? As a boy, I tried that a couple of times. It didn't work. It was an odd plan that God gave Naaman for healing his leprosy. But it worked. It worked. Lesson four. The greatest healing is the soul's salvation. The greatest healing is the soul's salvation. Now I want you to understand what I believe transpired in the mind of Naaman. I believe Naaman came to understand this important truth. It wasn't taking a bath in the Jordan River that healed me. It was the God of the prophet Elisha that healed me. And how do I know that? Because look at verse 15. When he returned, when Naaman returned to the man of God, that is Elisha the prophet, with all of his entourage, he came and stood before him and he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He came to understand that it wasn't the river Jordan that healed him. And it wasn't the prophet who healed him. It was the true and living God that healed him. Otherwise, his request in the following verses would have been different. If he believed that it was the waters of the Jordan that healed him, he would not have asked for two donkey loads of dirt to go back to Syria with him. He would have asked for several jars of water from the Jordan River to go back with him. And if he believed that it was the power of the prophet that healed him, he would not have taken two donkey's loads of dirt back to Syria. He would have captured Elisha and taken Elisha back with him to Syria. No. He believed it was the power of Elisha's God, the true and living God, that healed him. And he says as much here. But again, this story is not just about physical healing. It's about spiritual healing. It's about salvation. And the display of divine power without sacrifice and without application of potions and without the application of mystical words opened his heart and his mind to the truth of El Elyon, the Most High God. Look at verse 17. I know our time is gone. We'll hit this and go. Naaman said, Let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no more offer burnt, burnt, burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Why would he ask for dirt? I know oftentimes in our Sunday schools when we're teaching children, we, you know, we talk about the healing and we talk about you know, the conversion, but we forget about the dirt. But the dirt is an, a vital part of the story. The dirt and Naaman's faith in God are related, are connected. Naaman was a man with significant responsibilities in Syria. We already know that. He couldn't stay in Israel, but he could take Israel with him. His unusual request stems from this belief in the heart and the minds of the Israelites and those who are not Israelites, but who, who are committed to God's people in this life. And that is that the dirt, that, well, back up, that the land of Israel belongs to God. 
and it belongs to God's people. He promised it to Abraham, did he not? And to Abraham's descendants, did he not? Yes, he did. This land belongs to God's people. It belongs to God. And so they believe whatever belongs to God is holy. And we find this in a number of places in the Old Testament. When Moses went, went and approached the burning bush, uh, God said, take off Jesus, I believe it was the, the pre-incarnate Christ, take off your shoes for the ground in which you're standing is holy ground. And the same with Joshua. Uh, when the man uh, on the horse, the captain of the Lord's host, uh, was approached by Joshua, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. The land that belongs to God is holy land. The dirt from this land is holy ground. Elisha understood Naaman's request and granted him two donkeys burdened down with dirt from Israel as an indication of a changed heart. And that changed heart, listen friends, that changed heart was going to go back to Syria. And that changed heart was going to use that dirt to build an altar to the Lord God where Naaman could worship the Lord God. He would still have to escort the king into uh, his pagan god's temple, but he wouldn't bow down to the pagan god and he wouldn't sacrifice to the pagan god. No, he brought that dirt back so he could worship the Lord God on that holy ground. Now, do you think his wife is going to ask him, what did you bring back that dirt for? <laughs> do you think his neighbors are going to say, hey, what's, what's with you know, these two donkeys with huge sacks of dirt? What's that all about? You couldn't bring us back something better than dirt? What about his soldiers? The men who highly respected him as their commander-in-chief. You think they're going to ask him, Hey, you know, did you conquer them? Did you take the spoils? Did you bring back gold and silver and all of these wonderful things? No, I brought back dirt. Why'd you bring back dirt? It became an opportunity for Naaman to tell his people about the true and living God who was able to heal him from death. Naaman believed that there was no God in all the earth but Israel. And he went home believing that, and he went home announcing that to the people that he met. Let me close with these words. God can and God does do many wonderful things for people. But they're all designed to bring them into a personal relationship with Him. And for Christian people who already know Him, these wonderful things that God does in your life are designed to bring you closer to Him. That your relationship to the Lord God will become deeper and broader and higher and stronger and more meaningful in your life. God does not do things willy-nilly. There's always a purpose for the things that God does in your life. It is to take you to the next level in your relationship to Him. And for those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it is to bring you into a saving relationship with Him. Whatever God does for you becomes a witnessing point for someone else. Through His intervention in your life, He can intervene in someone else's life. Through Naaman's gift of dirt, he would be able to talk to a pagan culture about the true and living God and bring them as well to saving faith in Him. My prayer is that we will allow the salvation of Jesus Christ to flow through us to others who are truly in need, in need of salvation or in need of a closer walk with the God who's already saved them. Father, as we approach the table, I would ask that you remind us again of the great sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, 
so that we might have life abundant in Him here and now and that we would have life eternal with Him in the kingdom that is yet to come. Bless us as we take the cup. To your honor and glory, I ask. Amen. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.